when the sacrifice of others is taken into account, the way we live our lives afterwards reflects the worth that we assign to that sacrifice. For the Christian, the knowledge of a Savior's sacrifice ought to do the same. I'm Kyle Grants, and I'm the lead pastor at Grace Bible Church. You know, biblical preaching is one of the highest priorities of our ministry, and I'm so thankful that you've chosen to listen. If you have any questions about our ministry or would like to know more about Christ, feel free to connect with us at www.gracebibleelkhart.com. Thank you again for spending these moments with us, and I pray that God transforms you by His grace through the Bible. If you would, please turn to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 14 this morning. Um, but before we jump into that and tell you of, of some experiences that I've had growing up on the East Coast um, and uh, being, living in uh, Philadelphia, it's nice and close to a lot of other major cities. We're only a few hours from New York City. We're only a few hours from Washington, D.C. So growing up through high school, uh, we went to field trips to all of those major cities that are pretty easy, uh, drivable distance. And one of the cities that I really enjoyed uh, was going to Washington, D.C., on school field trips, and you say, oh, wow, that, was, that would not be one that I would enjoy, maybe not. Um, but it was, it was great. We didn't necessarily go to the Capitol building or anything like that. Um, we would go and see all of the monuments and everything. There, there's so much to see in Washington, D.C. And so uh, between uh, my family uh, actually making trips and, and just going on school field trips, I was able to see a lot of different memorials uh, that are there sitting around Washington, D.C., was able to see uh, the Declaration of Independence, was able to see the, the Lincoln Memorial and, and stand there and, and look out at the reflecting pool and the Washington Monument, um, and see a lot of the different war memorials as well. Walking by the, the Vietnam Memorial and seeing all of the names that are written there uh, in that, that stone, as well as the Korean Memorial with, with the same thing, with, with the statues of soldiers out front of it. Um, but one of the most moving things, I know for me, as a, as, a, as a high schooler, was walking through Arlington National Cemetery. Um, and to, to walk through it, and you're prepped as a junior hire, as a high schooler, that this is a place that is very serious, okay? And, and it's not to be just, you know, chucking things at each other uh, or, you know, just goofing off. Um, but this is a very serious place. And as you walk down, as you, as you, if you go up through the, the hills that are there in the cemetery and you begin to look down just the rows of white crosses, uh, pristine and so organized, and you begin to walk down and, and you see all of this and everything's very quiet, it's very beautiful. Um, and one thing that we always did, we went, I went on a couple of field trips um, and, and were, was able to walk through Arlington. Uh, is to go to the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier and watch the changing of the guards. Uh, if you've never gotten the opportunity to do that, and if you're ever out the way, you should. Um, but me, as, as a teenager, um, it, it's, hard for, it's hard for a teen, it's hard for you know, a junior hire, it's hard for me to grasp uh, what I truly 
had received as an American citizen based on my lack of, of knowledge, based on my lack of understanding what had been given for me and the kind of freedoms that I had based on others who had given their lives, others who had sacrificed so much. And when we got to the tomb of the unknown soldier, it was, the, it was especially impactful because you watch, um, there's, there's at, at times maybe even a hundred or a couple hundred people that, that are gathered around this place, this large tomb, um, and with a, a guard that is walking back and forth across this mat. And you can see on this black mat all of the, all of the footprints, there's worn footprints in this mat that every single guard places their foot in. And the way they carry themselves and the way that they, they check things. And, and when you get to, when they actually change the guard, how everything is done with such precision and such care and such importance and such weight. Um, and it's, the crowd is absolutely silent. And you would think how in, the, how in the middle of a city could things be that quiet? But you're up on a hill um, you're l- looking out and maybe all you really hear is maybe some birds or like the rustling of a wind and you hear these guards as, as they change places. Experiencing these field, tr- field trips, especially uh, looking at that, that tomb of the unknown soldier and everything that's done to take care of that is extremely significant. It grew my knowledge of the sacrifice that others had changed and it changed um, my view of how my life ought to look, how my life ought to be lived in light of the freedoms that so many had given for me. I use this to illustrate that a knowledge of a sacrifice that was made for us truly opens our eyes to the way that we should live our lives today. When we grow in a knowledge of what has been given, of what has been sacrificed, that should move us, that should change us in how we live our lives. When the sacrifice of others is taken into account, the way we live our lives afterwards reflects the worth that we assign to that sacrifice. And for the Christian, the knowledge of a Savior's sacrifice ought to do the same. And we know the name of the one who sacrificed his life for us. Just as the reality of of tombs of soldiers, of graves of soldiers ought to change the way that we live worthy of that freedom, the reality of the empty tomb of Jesus ought to change the way we as believers Walk worthy of Christ in our lives, in knowledge of that sacrifice, in knowledge of the empty tomb and where Christ is today. To give you a little background just on the book of Colossians, because I know we've been in the Gospel of John, uh, and and to just jump right into Colossians, there's so many things going on. Um, Obviously, we're in chapter one, so this is the beginning of Paul's letter to the Colossian believers um, and the main reason for why Paul is writing this letter to the, to the believers at the church in Colossae uh, is really to, to address a report that he had been given of them. 
Uh, it was a good report, but there were some also some, some things that he wanted to, ha- to address, uh, especially some false teaching that was going on in the Colossian church. And this false teaching, this, this knowledge of, of mistaking what the gospel really was, was, leave, was leading to some wrong living. And so Paul really addresses this in the book of Colossians. And what Paul does is he makes Christ in his letter to the Colossians look big. He magnifies Christ all throughout the letter, hoping or or knowing that by magnifying Christ and, and getting the Colossian believers to theologically know who Jesus is, will change the way that they practically live their lives. So Paul here knows that the ones he is writing to are believers. He knows that they have shared in a faith and a a love for each other and a hope that they have. We see this in in chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. And with this this report, where we come into verse 9 through 14, Paul Paul is... going to give the Colossians an idea of what he prays for for them. An intercessory prayer for them in their walk with the Lord. And that's where we're going to find ourselves this morning. And before we, before we break these verses down, let's, let's pray uh, for our service this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how rich it is how trustworthy it is. God, we know that your word can change us. And Lord, I I pray that it would this morning. Lord, it it was a joy to prepare this this week. And I pray that you would feed your people this morning. God, I pray that you would use your word, not my words, but yours God, we are so thankful for you. I pray that you would open our eyes this morning. You would remove the distractions from our hearts to see what it truly is that you have for us this morning. Lord, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Um, Our main idea for this morning, um, as as we're going to look, it's it's great... um, to be able to preach the gospel, and that's what we're going to do this morning. Our main idea is that, that grasping the gospel of Jesus challenges believers to live worthy of Jesus. Grasping the gospel of Jesus challenges believers to live worthy of Jesus. We're going to see that Paul gives two things uh, here uh, in, in verse 9 through 14. Uh, he's going to tell the Colossians of his prayer for them, what his prayer is. And then in verse 10, he's going to give uh, the purpose behind his prayer, why he is really praying this for them. So he's going to tell the Colossians of his prayer for them and the purpose behind that prayer. So in verse 9, and let's, let's re- read our passage this morning, starting in verse 9, Paul says, And so, from the day we heard... We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom 
and understanding. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So Paul here in verse 9 tells the Colossians what his prayer is for them. He says, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking what? That they may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So Paul wants the Colossian believers to be filled with this knowledge of God's will. And the first question we really should ask is, so what is the knowledge of God's will that Paul is referring to here? What is this knowledge? Paul in verse 10, one verse later, speaks again of, of the knowledge of God. And I think what he's doing, he's, he's connecting this through to this idea in verse 10 that that this being filled with the knowledge of God's will should ought to be increasing in our lives as well. And he draws this as well, even through chapter 2, in verse 2, where he says this, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. The knowledge of God's will that Paul wants the Colossian believers to be filled with, to be full of, is God's will as it pertains to the plan of salvation, as it pertains to the gospel. This is God's will. We, 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 we couch it in the term of, of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news of Jesus is what Paul wants the Colossian believers to be filled with. And our passage here in verses 9 through 14 is really even framed with this. Because in verse 12, Paul goes a little bit further into detail on what this gospel really is. What Jesus really has done. What God has done through his son. And verses 12 through 14 again is directed towards these believers, one who, ones who have placed their faith in Christ. And Paul says, here is the reality, here is the spiritual reality that is now a part of your life as believers in Jesus Christ. And what Paul does through verses 12 through 14 is very interesting. He uses Israel's history as kind of a, a reference point symbolizing what God's plan of salvation has done for the Gentile Colossian believers, using Israel's story as a way to present the realities that, that they now have. And there's this reference through these verses of, of what God has done, even in his people, of Israel, to, uh, of his people Israel, and what he has done now for, for these Colossian Gentile believers. So the, the first thing that Paul says here in verse 12 is giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share 
in the inheritance of the saints. This alludes to the apportioning of, of land in the Old Testament. We see this Deuteronomy 32, Joshua 19. It, Paul is saying here that God has qualified the Colossian believers to have a share in the inheritance of what God has given. And this, this inheritance of, of being God's people, of, of knowing God, of having a relationship with God was really thought to have only been reserved for the Jewish people. This was only to be reserved for the Israelites. But what Paul is saying here is now God has qualified you, Gentile, Colossian believers, to share, have a share in that same inheritance. Have a share in a relationship with God and being restored to fellowship with Him. It is now offered to these Gentiles. This inheritance of the saints in light that he is talking about here is is eternal life that is promised by God that can be claimed by the believer. And it's not that the Colossian believers have done anything to be given this for. It says that God is the one that has qualified them of no merit of their own, of no accomplishment that they have done, of no background that they have. Paul's explanation of the gospel even here is that that God has qualified them for a share in that inheritance of that eternal life promised by God that they can now claim. The second verb that that Paul uses here, he says you're qualified to share in the inheritance of saints and light and that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness And we look at this phrase, we look at it coupled with what Paul says in verse 14 where he brings the theme of redemption up and the forgiveness of sins. Uh, We see this kind of allusion to um, what, what took place with the Israelites in the Exodus. That as the Israelites in their history, in their story, were under oppression in Egypt, were under the dominion and domination of of Pharaoh. And how God miraculously brought them out from from under that dominion of darkness. God has so done to the Colossian believers. And this is a reality that they can experience. It's a new exodus. a, A spiritual exodus. That God has led believers out of that. Of those chains. Of that burden. God has liberated believers on behalf of Christ. So God qualified the Colossian believers to share an inheritance of the saints. He has delivered them from the domain of darkness and he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. This is this realm in light that that Paul is, is giving here in verse 12 where we who are not a part of this kingdom we who did not hold any kind of citizenship, but were under the bonds of darkness and sin and death, have now been transferred, have been liberated from that and transferred, transplanted to being ruled by a much better king. A king in whose kingdom offers freedom and who offers love as evidenced by the next verse in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 
These Colossian believers, Paul wants to remind them that they have been redeemed and forgiven by Christ. Those who were slaves to sin, to death, have been bought back by Christ in the shedding of his blood and Christ's payment for them. They have been released from that bondage. That, that word forgiveness really does mean to, to release. Where the, the, the sin debt that, that was on these, these people, the Colossians, has now been removed because of Christ's redemption and forgiveness. Paul talks about this later in chapter 2 and gives us an even better picture. If you turn a page over and look at chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says this, And you who were dead... In your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the spiritual reality that Paul wants the Colossian believers to grasp, to understand. That they who of no right, of no merit of their own have been given rich blessings by God who has offered them a share in the inheritance of the saints, who has released them, who has liberated them from a, a, a domain of darkness and transferred them into the kingdom of Christ, and who have been offered redemption and forgiveness for their sins. This is the spiritual reality that Paul is praying that the Colossians would be filled with the knowledge of. He wants them to understand the depth of the gospel. He wants them to know and hear as well, even in verse 12, to be thankful for, to, be, to have gratitude on behalf of what God has done for them. Paul's prayer is that the Colossians have a deep knowledge of this gospel. Because Paul understands that the knowledge of Christ and a deep knowledge of the gospel and the plan of salvation that God put into action transforms an individual to know the blessings of the freedom that they have been given in Christ. So this is the knowledge of God's will that Paul wants the believers here to grasp, to understand, to know the deep riches that are there, to plumb the depths of what the gospel means for them, the blessings that are bestowed on them because of Christ. And he says, right, before, he, he, he says this phrase, to be filled with the knowledge of his will. So what does he mean? What is Paul saying by be filled with the knowledge of his will and in all spiritual wisdom and understanding? I think Paul is, is trying to get the, the Colossian believers to understand a couple of things. One, that God is the giver of this knowledge. You see, the, the verb is passive here. It's not that they are to fill themselves or that they are to accumulate this knowledge somehow, but they are to be filled by God. God Paul's prayer here is 
to God, indicating Paul's reliance on God's action in this. Paul's dependence on God to move and God to fill these believers with this knowledge so that they can more deeply understand it. Paul's assumption that he's working with here is that God must do this work. It comes from God. He is the giver of this knowledge. We're seeing as well that even in the phrase, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, that this, this wisdom is not any kind of earthly wisdom. It's no, kind of, it's no wisdom or knowledge that any human tradition or, or human imagination is, is going to attain. It is a, a spiritual wisdom, meaning that its source is from the Spirit of God. It's only by the Spirit that this wisdom can be received. God is the giver of this knowledge. And this knowledge as well is, is only found in God. What we see is as we, as we continue to study Colossians is that Paul, I think, is using this word be filled um, because... Uh, we see he, he uses that, that specific language a few more times throughout his book. Probably because that with this false teaching that was happening in Colossae within the church, there was, there was a, a teaching that there was a more full knowledge that could be had. That there was uh, a, an extra level that you could get to where you would understand God more. That you would be maybe a better believer. And, and some have said that this is maybe something to do with, with obeying Jewish law and Jewish traditions. Or even walking into paganism and, and, and letting that bleed into uh, the Bible and Christian doctrine. But regardless, Paul here is saying you need to be filled with the knowledge of, of God's wisdom and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. We see Paul use this phrase in, uh, in verse 19, where Paul says, For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The fullness of God, everything to know about God was in Christ. We see this later in verse 25, where Paul says, Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. To make the word of God fully known. There is no more to know. There is no extra human level to this. Paul says, when I gave you the gospel, I wanted to give you the word so that it would be fully known. Because it's fully in Christ. He says this even later in verses 8 through 10 of chapter 2. Where Paul is going to specifically refute some of this false teaching. And he goes into verse 8 and he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority." The false teachers were presenting a teaching that they said would make the Colossians more knowledgeable, more full. But what Paul says here, even in Colossians 1, is that the fullness of God, and he wants the, the Colossian believers to be filled with this knowledge of God's will, because that is the fullest knowledge there is. 
There is nothing to be added to or to be subtracted from the gospel. In the gospel, the believer is offered the fullest knowledge of God's will. We see that in Christ. We see that in his death, his burial, and resurrection. That is the fullest knowledge. To be able to experience the spiritual realities that Paul mentions even here in verses 12 through 14. You see, this is a, even an issue that we face today. You can go to maybe Barnes and Noble or, or a bookstore and go to the religious section or the Christian section and walk down and find book after book after book of many people that are adding to the gospel or subtracting from the gospel. But all couched in, this is Christian living, this is what it means to be a Christian, but not obeying what the scriptures say and what, who Christ is in God's word. You see, the problem is they're presenting Christian living devoid of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And we, we like to take our knowledge of the gospel, even from, from secondhand sources. We get a, a second-hand gospel, and I would encourage us, encourage us even this morning to put the gospel in its primary place and get it firsthand. Read it from God's Word. We preach it on Sundays, but, but get into the Word yourself. Experience the, the richness of the blessings that we get to experience as believers in Jesus Christ firsthand from reading it yourself. So Paul's prayer for the Colossian believers is that they would be filled, that they would understand that, that full knowledge of God's will, which is the gospel. It's only given by God. And so Paul prays that God would fill them with that, that they would have a deeper knowledge, a deeper understanding of the richness of the gospel, of the depth of the gospel. And then what Paul does, starting in verse 10, is essentially he gives application. For this is his prayer, but he prays this with a specific purpose in mind. Paul essentially is connecting theology, right? Knowing the gospel, knowing God's will, knowing Christ to practice in verse 10. Without good, correct theology, without, that, without being filled in the knowledge of his will, without understanding the gospel and realizing the gospel and the spiritual blessings that are there to be known, true biblical living is severely limited. We see this even all throughout what Paul writes as he typically has deep theology that he is trying to bring to the people that he is writing to, and he connects it later on in his letter to, okay, so here's that, how that connects to Christian living. Here's how that connects to the function of the church. And so again, I think the point of what Paul's trying to say here is grasp the gospel, understand what it truly is. May God fill you with that, that knowledge of what his will is. That you would know what Christ has done for you. And he says that there, there's a purpose attached to that. 
that when they're filled so as that they might be in order that, verse 10, that they might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That knowledge that they have should translate to a conduct in their life should transform them into how they walk, how they conduct their lives to reflect the worth of Jesus and his sacrifice, what they know to be in the gospel. And Paul gives four ways here. He breaks down four areas that should be evident in that Christian life. A life that is is walked in a manner worthy of the Lord that is fully pleasing to God. When the gospel transforms an individual and they are able to grasp and and know what that is, what Christ has done for them, that translates into how they live, how they interact in this world. And there are four specific areas that, that Paul gives that we can walk worthy, that we can fully please God. The first here is that Paul says that they should be bearing fruit in every good work. There's an illustration that, that Paul is using here. Right? It's a figure of speech to say you know, that they're bearing fruit. It's not that they're literally you know, budding apples and bananas and things like that. It's that they are to be bearing fruit. They are to be working for on behalf of the gospel. And it's, it, it's easy to interpret bearing fruit in every good work, I think, in a in, as just doing good things, um, you know, being kind, um, having self-control, um, you know, being honest, not telling lies, and, and doing good things, and serving. And I think that's legitimate, but I think in context of what Paul's talking about here and the importance of the gospel and that the believers ought to be bearing fruit, I think what he's more literally doing here. It's saying, what is, what is the point of a tree bearing fruit? It's to reproduce itself by way of bearing that fruit. The direct sense here, I think, is, is, is a reproduction of the gospel. Right? The, the point of a tree bearing fruit is not so that we just get tasty things to eat. It has seeds. You know, there's annoying things that we've got to eat around in it. Where when they're planted, they grow up into new trees, new plants. There is new growth and new trees that are, that are at the end of this, is this goal of bearing fruit. And trees which don't produce fruit are going against the, the natural biology of that tree. All trees ought to do this. This is what Paul's saying. They need to be bearing fruit in every good work. And I think what he's even doing is connecting it back to verse 6 in chapter 1. Just a few verses earlier where Paul, I'll back it up halfway into verse 5, he says this, Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So I think what Paul's really talking about here is, is as a Christian, to walk worthy of the Lord, to fully please God, it means that we're bearing witness. We're spreading the gospel. 
as the gospel had come to the Colossians, and Paul says it was bearing fruit among you, and it's bearing fruit in the world, it's growing, it's increasing, there's reproduction of the gospel happening. Every Christian believer, this should be a part of your life. If you know the gospel and what Christ has done for you, that should not just stay contained within ourselves. There should be witness, there should be testimony of that good news. And there should be fruit that is bared because of that. Fruit that is spread, the gospel that goes forth out of God's people. So Paul prays that they would understand the gospel so that they would walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. One, bearing fruit, being a witness and spreading the gospel. And then secondly, we see here, he says, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Again, Paul has already prayed that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. So what is he really referring to here? It's kind of, I think what Paul's doing is is, it's a reciprocal idea. That good theology being filled with the true gospel, understanding what that is, produces a desire for lifelong study of further good theology. Being filled with the knowledge of God drives a further increasing in the knowledge of God. So it means that when we understand the gospel, that we begin to bear fruit, we begin to tell others, and we begin to see the gospel go forth and spread by the power of God. And then inwardly, there is an increasing in the knowledge of God. There is a a desire to know more about who he is, to know even more to understand and grasp the full realities of the gospel. I think what Paul's doing here as well is he's kind of answering himself for what he's going to do here in chapter 2, which is refuting false teaching. This answers the question of, well, how are the Colossians not to fall prey to further false teaching that would arise? And it's because they're increasing in the knowledge of God. Knowing the biblical gospel well is the best way to defend it from any false gospel. Knowing what the Bible has said, what God's word has said about the gospel and about Christ and about himself and about our sinful state is the best way to be able to defend what that true gospel is from any false gospel that we might hear. I think that's what Paul is essentially even saying here as well. Because we see that Paul had to do this in his own life. Even as a, as a somewhat newer believer, I've been reading recently even in, in just the book of Galatians. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul gives uh, a, an, an instance in which he had to oppose the apostle Peter to his face because he was getting the gospel wrong. Because he wasn't understanding what the gospel really was and the truth of that gospel. And so Paul has to stand up to Peter because Paul knew what the gospel meant. Paul had a rich understanding of what the gospel was, even to the point where he knew that Peter was wrong and he needed to tell him about it. I don't, um, I'm not very good with jewelry. Um, and and I, don't, I, don't, I have no jeweler friends. Um, but I know I've, I've only bought one diamond in my life for my wife. And um, 
the jeweler probably could have put literally anything in front of me, and I would have had no idea what the difference was, right? He could have put something that was worth like $3 in front of me, and I'd be like, yeah, it looks good to me, right? Now, thankfully, it was a trustworthy jeweler, right? But why would I not know? Because I have no experience with it, right? Whereas if you were to put that same diamond, maybe that's a $3 diamond or maybe that's you know, a $100 diamond in front of a jeweler who has worked with diamonds for a long time, who has inspected them, who knows every facet of what a diamond is and how it works and how the light refracts in and out. You were to put that diamond and they would, no, 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 that, that is a fake. And I can tell you that for certain. Why? Because they have a deeper knowledge of what that is, of how it's supposed to be. And you can spot fakes. Paul's desire here is that the Colossians would know the gospel so that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in their lives, and then increasing in that knowledge of God. Theology is not just for seminary professors and pastors. It is for every Christian believer to know the gospel, to know God, because again, that theology translates into how we live, right? For, for me, I, I didn't have that, that knowledge of maybe the, the, all the sacrifices that were made for me, so I lived my life differently. Whereas when I went and I began to understand what had been given to me and, and the realities that I today get to experience, it changes the way you live. It changes the way you interact with the world around you. It changes your priorities in life. And Paul's saying he wants them to know this gospel well, that they might bear fruit and that they might increase in that knowledge of God. And lastly, Paul, uh, Paul says here as well that they would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Paul is talking here about perseverance. So a believer who walks worthy of the Lord, who is fully pleasing to God, bears fruit, spreads the gospel, increases in their knowledge of God, and then is strengthened by God for endurance and patience with joy. Notice again that this is a passive here. It's being strengthened. It's not that the Colossians were to find any inner strength or rely on the experiences that they've had and what has happened in their past to make a better choice in the future and to be able to outlast and to be able to remain faithful. No, what Paul says is it's a reliance on the strength of the Almighty which leads to perseverance. It's according to God's glorious might. The standard of measure here is that the believers have access to the glorious might of God. The, the creator God is the one who can strengthen them with all of that power, with all of that might, with all of that strength. I think what Paul here is, is even doing is that the, the reliance on human traditions and things that were extra added to the gospel would only produce weak Christians that would leave the faith but it's a reliance on the glorious might of God that produces strength and faithfulness in the midst of trial, in the midst of suffering, and in the midst of, 
of waiting on the Lord. The trials that will come in the Christian life can be met with the full strength of God. And his people are to be faithful, fully pleasing to him. That's walking worthy of the Lord. To rely on that strength that God saved you with. To keep you as well. This is the believer's life. This is how we fully please God. This is how we walk worthy of the sacrifice of Christ is to persevere and remain strong, not in our strength, but in the strength of God, giving us endurance and giving us patience. And then lastly, he says here, giving thanks to the Father. The Christian life is characterized by an attitude of thanksgiving. It should come out when we pray. It should come out as we sing. It should come out reflected in the priorities of our life as we give thanks to God because of, again, verses 12 through 14, what he has done for us in the gospel. So these four ways are how believers can walk worthy of Christ some application for how how that theology of understanding the richness, the depth of the love of God, even that we read earlier in Ephesians 3, can translate into a correct way of living where we are fully pleasing God and we recognize and walk worthy of what Jesus has done for us. So, Some final questions for you as we close this morning. What are you anchoring your life in? What have you secured yourself to in this life? Because Paul's prayer for the Colossians here is that they would be anchored, that they would be filled with the gospel, with what God has done for them. That they would be secured to that because it would produce Christians that are living worthy of Christ. That are bearing fruit. That are increasing in their knowledge of God. That are persevering through the difficult and the suffering and trials that they are going through. And that they are doing that all with joy and with a sense of gratitude and thankfulness to God for what he's done. Where is the motivation coming from to live this way in your life? I think we all want to live successful. We want to live good lives. But where is your motivation coming from to do that? Is it because of selfish reasons? Or is it because of what Jesus has done for you? What he's done for me? Are you allowing yourself to be filled with the knowledge of the gospel? Are you praying for it? as Paul was praying for it for the Colossians, that God would give you an even even greater understanding, even greater sense of the gospel and what it means. For those who have not trusted Christ, who have not placed their faith in the gospel, verse 12 through 14 is offered to you. Sharing in that inheritance of the saints, being delivered from the domain of darkness, transferred to a better kingdom of God's beloved son and having redemption and forgiveness of your sins that is all offered to you on the basis of Christ alone and by putting your faith alone in him. For believers this morning, for those who have placed their faith in the gospel, in Christ, 
Grasping the gospel is the only true anchor that helps us live worthy of Christ. I hope that your prayer is is to dig into this book, to understand, to really grasp what Jesus has done for you because I can tell you what, what, what Paul is saying here, it will translate into a life that is lived worthy of Christ. That, that knowledge of what he has done will help you live in a way that pleases God. 